Ah, yes. The Comfort Eagle, ladies and gentlemen, by my favorite band, Cake. I like to think that the Comfort Eagle is a perfect symbol for America. It's like it's a, it's a perfect incarnation. It is, as an eagle, it represents all of our American yearning for freedom and liberty over the land and over our souls. Uh, and comfort is what that freedom means to us. We are all of us, in fact, comfort eagles flying through the skies in search of carrying dreams of comfort and convenience. Above all, and certainly above any human consideration, any question of spirit or morality, or even intellect for that matter, even, even, even intellectual pursuit of any kind, just the dumb brute submission to the logic of capitalism, squeezing all soul out of human life in the pursuit of comfort to maintain the sweatless brow and soft pink cheeks. I, of course, speak of myself. I know I do. But it is, it is something we are all trapped by. It is, all, it is our, our search for comfort, our, our grasping hands towards comfort are really the, the nightmare of dead generations lying on our heads every day. So, I wanted to set, talk about something today. I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about what I heard from a friend, because I heard from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another Trumper stealing the election. Down, 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 and I can't believe it, and I can't conceive it. Cause we're under the gun and Trump's stealing the election. Ooh. So it seems like people are kind of erotically enthralled with the idea of Trump having a coup in November. Am I wrong about this? Do the way, does the way people talk about Trump just destroying the Constitution, uh, smashing all of the idols of democracy, do they not speak with a virtual ball gag in their mouths? And a, uh, perhaps a butt plug betwixt their cheeks. They seem to be erotically enthralled by the idea of this apocalyptic confrontation that will resolve all of the neuroses and tension of their psyches. The un- currently unsustainable levels of anxiety we feel as we watch the world careen towards disaster desire and feel a need to move towards some confrontation with this that could salvage or redeem humanity. Uh, and no hope of seeing it carried out. It's enough to drive you absolutely mad. And they want it to be resolved. And a confrontation and Trump getting rid of the Constitution is the apocalypse. It is the revealing of all that was hidden. It is the final vindication of every argument you've ever had online. Every time you've ever fought about somebody, about the nature of the country and about the racism of the people and about fascism and about your commitment to, to revolution and your, your absolute revulsion at the current state of things and your absolute commitment to its destruction. And then perhaps you get to redeem your sins of life, your, your weaknesses, your temptations, the times that you took the easy path, the times that you called seamless or went to McDonald's, the times that you, you, you benefited from a privilege that you didn't challenge. Uh, you get to die on an altar uh, of sacrifice that will redeem your soul. 
It's, 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 you get to go to the camps. You get to be Victor Yara in the Santiago Stadium. You get to become Christ. That's a huge psychic incentive. And for liberals, I mean, it's kind of interesting because at one level, the liberal fixation on Trump doing a coup is sort of, it speaks to the death drive of liberalism because like liberalism presupposes as a fundamental metaphysical fact that elections and voting are the sole axis of human political involvement. Elections are the be all and end all because... As liberals, they are committed first and foremost to the maintenance of the greater structure of capitalism with government as like an interceding body within it. They are committed to that, and they're not going anywhere on that. So if Trump just says, yeah, no, the election isn't happening, or I don't recognize these results, it shatters their world it, it it gives them a choice of do i just accept that there is no more political participation i cannot be a political being i cannot be liberal in any meaningful sense i have i must submit or will they say no if the I, the left is correct the left was right all along or even if they weren't they're right now and we have to confront this and we have to confront it directly through direct action coordinated and and organized along things like workplaces like union organizing and strikes and sympathy strikes illegal strikes wildcat strikes which liberals are just at this point incapable of even conceiving so if there is an accelerationist case to be made for the 2020 election i don't think it's for trump or biden because there are accelerationist cases, and I don't mean in terms of which is the morally correct outcome. I mean in which is one will actually do the job of accelerating to us towards a a politically um, useful crisis. Like that's what we mean when we use that term. We're talking about accelerating towards a crisis point that can be useful, that can change the current trajectory and reframe the class dynamic. There is one, of the three possibilities, Trump winning outright, Biden winning outright, or Trump winning in a coup, the accelerated one, the one that gives us the best chance for anything productive to come from it, honestly, to me, I think is Trump doing a coup because that will end for a substantial percentage, but not everyone. There will be diehards who say, no, we now need to vote even harder. Uh, but they will be like a religious sect at that point. Most people will real, be disenchanted with politics in a way that the ultra-left has always demanded of, and they've always blamed guys like Bernie and us for sheep-dipping people into the Democratic Party. And I always have to say to that, that's meaningless. I'm sorry. They were going to go there anywhere because they did not believe your premise. They did not believe that we had to confront the state directly and put our bodies at, at harm's way. They thought, because it's easier for them to think that, you could argue, or whatever, for one reason or another, they were not convinced by you. And they wanted to still try the electoral path because it was the path of least resistance, which most people are always going to want to take. And now that path will be foreclosed. Now there's cases to be made for Trump. The case to, for Trump is with, with uh, Trump in power, it will maybe shatter the illusion of the Democratic Party and it has o over its voters because of its failure once again. That might happen, but honestly, as we know, when prophecy fails, it usually makes people double down on their beliefs, not abandon them. 
You know, the fucking Millerites who went up on a hill in the 1820s and waited for the rapture and then came down that later that day, they didn't just disband. They're the Seventh-day Adventists now. So there will still be people committed to the Democratic Party, even in that case, because what's the alternative? There's nothing built, and I don't know if anything can be built in time. And with Trump winning out, or with Biden winning outright, the hope is, well, he'll be wholly in, uh, he will be wholly, wholly on up to the moment. He will botch any response to corona or the economy. People's lives will get worse and worse. He will give you nothing but a smile and a tax credit and a fucking uh, and a, and a eulogy at your fucking funeral after you die of a pre-existing condition. Because, oops, the new 6-3 majority uh, just overturned Obamacare, and so my family members don't have health insurance anymore. Oops. And in that context, the... Um, the democratic base will break from its leadership again, maybe, but none of these have really high percentages. Even the Trump one is probably would not work, but I do think that honestly though, because the Trump one is the best accelerationist case, I think that's why it's still the least likely of those three outcomes because at the end of the day for Trump to do a coup as in stop the vote reverse a understood popularly understood democratic victory or something that could plausibly be construed by 51 percent of the population as a democratic victory uh to 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 allow that to happen to have that intervened with you he would need the support of the highest levels of power in every structure that we have intersecting between the government and private power from the fucking Fed to the party structures themselves, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, uh, the fucking military, the deep state, but not even the deep state, like the, not just the deep like uh, military or foreign policy state, but like the, just the domestic infrastructure of like a persisting uh, a government. They would have to accede to this. And why would they put this whole thing on the line? disrupt potentially the relationship between the people and their form of government which till now has been paying off we're still yes the economy is bad but it's still one of the biggest in the fucking world if not the biggest there's still a lot of money to be made here there's still a lot of juice in this fucking apple to squeeze and there's emerging markets to connect to why would you destabilize this on behalf of a guy who is if anything an embarrassment he might do a good job of like polarizing the rubes along meaningless cultural issues and keeping people distracted from the like looting of the economy but he is also at the end of the day someone who is either a liability or a benefit and i think in a context where they would have to go to bat for trump's coup he would be a fucking liability and they would cut him fucking loose because how is joe biden a serious threat to the system now you can make a case that if bernie's the nominee they might go to the back for trump depending on how obvious the coup would be but with fucking biden what do they have to threaten what's the danger the democratic party is still playing ball the democratic party is still in hands that are people that people at high levels of all these institutions know how to do business with. So where's the incentive to go along with a Trump coup? That is to me why it's the least likely option. So that's what I wanted to get off talking about because it seems like some people online are honestly getting off on the idea of being finally like put behind bars and having their lives redeemed, like their, their wasted, fatuous, internet-obsessed lives redeemed by real suffering and real repentance. Because otherwise, I don't understand the like the instinct in, the instinct behind this. Because the reason I say it's libidinal is: are any of these people or 
actually arguing to do anything about the fact that there's going to be a coup other than smugly tell you so. There's people on there I see now literally saying, I can't wait to say I told you so when we're all in the camps. So you don't really believe this shit. It's like it's a fucking, it's a red pump grinding into your ball sack. It's a sexual uh, erogenous zone activator for some of these people. Because I'm sorry, it's not, it's not likely to happen. You're turning yourselves on. It's like public masturbation. And I get it. I understand why everyone wants some sort of climax to this. We've been fucking, we're getting fucking teased. We're getting cock teased on this apocalypse. And I'm sorry, it's probably never going to happen. You're probably going to die blue balled. Because nobody, very few people get to see it. Very few people get to see the elephant. Most people live in a continuity that is self-consciously a continuity that is not that is not a moment of, of, of apotheosis. And that is probably true of us. We have to act like we're going to be here tomorrow. It's the only way to be. You have to assume you're going to be here tomorrow. Hey, guys, how you doing? <sighs> Anything good in the chat yet, Christopher? Are you a Christopher? Uh, I am. I'm certainly not a Christoph or anything. Uh, why don't you uh, you monitor the chat for a little bit? I've got I've got a few, but you know, yeah, I'm looking they, at they it. They like they like when you talk directly to them. I know that. I just I, I just got done with my little my little uh, sermon. I need a little cool down here, so I'm looking at them. Someone says nice shirt. Thank you. It's kind of my Pollock. This is a Bud Light seltzer. It's pretty good. Black cherry. I'm hoping to grill this weekend. Someone asked about grilling plans. I'm hoping to have a, a birthday grill, pre-birthday grill, because, of course, my actual birthday, amazingly, is election night. Or, I'm sorry, the first debate night, which will either be the best or worst gift I've ever received in my life. Uh, either way, I'm going to be very high, and I'm going to be ready to step through the Stargate. Uh, I, you get, get, I, I don't want to overcommit, I don't overpromise, but expect some Stargate gazing because this is going to be one of the most just powerful moments of popular spectacle uh, that we can wring out of this dying fucking moment where there is really a dwindling set of things that even can be called moments. It's We don't even have pseudo events. We have just this this unending stream of non-events. This stands out as something that could potentially be very fun. Uh, it'll probably suck, though. And I'm ready for that. I'm fine. I hope they're in the same room, and I hope they talk about Malarkey and Sassafras and Cheryl Teagues being very unfair to him at the Models Cafe opening. Libra, baby. Me and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Libra Kings. Who are there are some Libras out there? Who are other famous Libras? Do we know any? Can we bring those? Jamie, can we bring those up in the chat? Uh, Let's go through some famous Libras. I think this could be funny. Who else has got my vibe? Who else has got my vibe of of justice? Uh, Right off the top, uh, some true legends here. Uh, Simon Cowell. Oh, God. Uh, I feel it. I feel it. Oh, the ju- he's literally a judge. It's perfect. 
He is there to judge. He is there to be the scale. Uh, John Lennon. Oh, God. Oh, I don't really like him very much, honestly. Uh, both Lil Wayne and Eminem. Hell yeah. Now that's power. Those are two. I mean, you'd say those are two of the most influential hip-hop artists of the last de- generation. Oh, certainly. You? Eminem, I, bestily, I believe, still the number one selling uh, musical artist of the at least the 2010s. Somebody is saying, someone century. says Susan Sarandon. Queen, we got to talk. Queen, we have to talk. Uh, and of course, Kim Kardashian. Oh, queen. Another queen. Oh, here's one for something we were just talking about. Uh, somebody in the chat says Henry Wallace. There we go. Libra King. We were just talking about Henry Wallace. As he is to, I was thinking about how he is one of those figures who is a potential doorway to other Americas. An America where we didn't have a Cold War and the, the, Integration of former colonies into a global market was done along cooperative instead of competitive lines. I mean, this is, of course, insane and unlikely, but I think there are a few potential Americas, a few potential worlds where that happened. And in all of them, Henry Wallace got to be president. But I must stipulate, highly unlikely still, just a handful of of possibilities of alternative versions, of sliders places you could go with Jerry O'Connell and John Rees Davies. I believe Carrie were was she on sliders? Oh, oh God! I pinched my nuts. Ah, <laughs> damn! Ooh, these pants. Uh, Tom York, Tom York uh, from Radiohead. Oh, Chris is triggered now. Chris is about the only man in his demographic and interests in America who does not like Radiohead. That is the most counterintuitive take that you have, in my opinion, of, of what else I know about you. Uh, look, I, I'm trying to stay off these streams for like the first like 20, 30 minutes. But if you're going to call me out, I do have to explain. Look, I get it. Radiohead are a good band. They're, uh, they're excellent at what they do. Obviously, top of their class. It's just not my thing. As a uh, famous as, as uh, Rolling Stones journalist, hashtag Britney Spano said, uh, it sounds like wind trying to fuck a computer. <laughs> Uh, faced you are faced incineration uh, but they have some bangers they do have some bangers i really like two plus two equals five uh i like that song uh just uh that's a good one and i like that one like 10 second part of paranoid android that really goes i always thought that if i if i was if i i I was when i was a younger man when i was in my 20s uh and i would go to baseball games more and when i lived in milwaukee I would kind of fantasize about being a cool baseball player because in my opinion, cool pe- cool people who are baseball players, as in like they have cool opinions, they have a general cool worldview. You know what I mean? People who are cool and also are professional baseball cool players are the coolest people on earth. Like guys like uh, Doc Ellis and Bill Spaceman Lee and uh, 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 what's his name? Is it? Sean McCarthy? No. Uh, uh, and Sean Doolittle. Sean Doolittle in the Nationals. Who follows me? I love that. Those, to me, are the coolest guys in the world. Uh, and where was I going with that? What was I talking about? Something about Radiohead? Right. And so I fantasized about being a cool baseball player. And I imagined that if I was a relief pitcher, because uh, like a closer. So when a closer comes in... They generally, if they're like a good established closer who's has a brand, 
because it's very easy to get that with a closer role because it's so inherently dramatic. You know, come in with a lead at the bottom of the ninth, high stakes. So it's always very dramatic. And everybody has a music that they come into. Like uh, um, famously, uh, Trevor Hoffman's was Hell's Bells by uh, ACDC. So it would start with those bells ringing. Dong, dong. Very dramatic. That was good. Uh, Mariano Riviera had a... Uh, had. Enter Sandman, I think, right? I know it was a Metallica song. But anyway, I always thought that if I was a cool relief pitcher, a cool closer, I would come into 2 plus 2 equals 5. Because it would come in, I would come on to the, and it was like that low ambient thing, you know, like, and like I start throwing a few pitches and it's, and the crowd's going crazy. And then, you know, I thought that would be cool. And then every, and then I would get to be like, "Oh, look at me! I've got a Radiohead song as my closer's music. I'm so cool." I had a lot of fantasies about being cool because I've never been cool in my life. But that's cool. I'm looking at some uh, chats here. I'd like some more Libras if anyone has any. And he, un, un, I know Lech Loessa had my birthday, the solidarity guy, which he helped bring down the Soviet Union. So uh, thumbs down to him. He was also apparently very horny. All right, who we got? Oh, Justice John Marshall, Eisenhower, Dr. Joyce Brothers. Damn. Return of the Mac would be a great walk-in song. That's, that's, oh, that would be amazing. I always used to get excited when a player had like a non-standard, like every, every, and every regular, uh, baseball player, their, their walk-up music is either generic, Nashville country, gen, uh, generic to me anyway, like salt Latin music or generic hip hop. Not in terms of bad, but in terms of, you know, mainstream stuff. At least according to me, as like a white, lily white man. It doesn't have the imperture of cool. And then when someone has a cool walk-up music, I'm always very excited. Like I remember Joey Vado's was painted black for a while. I like that. Putin is a legend. Oh well, Putin is an absolute legend. I mean, my God, if I, I would love to be on his level, the guy is—he's doing a lot with a little. When you when you think about like what the actual GDP of Russia is, the guy hits way above his weight at this point, and that's of course why he's an enemy because he decided no, we're not going to be another link in the American-based global uh, uh, vampire squid. We're gonna we're gonna keep our own domestic uh, economy. That is why he is to be reviled. But it doesn't, of course, make him a good dude. He's a piece of shit. And his government is just a rival kleptocracy. It's just like us. We're all ri- we're rival gangs of looters squatting over the spoils and fighting over the last remnants as they come pouring out of the, out of the gushering uh, fire hydrants. Yeah, that's good. Anything good in the chat yet? 
Nietzsche is a Libra? Oh, dude. These are clearly the most... These people are... Uh, oh, my God. Khomeini also? Wow. I've, I, this is written in the stars. And then I got the Leo Rising, which, which apparently makes me a big uh, ham and incredibly craving attention at all moments, which I guess is fair. Got I got a cop to that one. So apparently Louisville is having uh, some protests. Chris, have you seen anything about that? Yet today on on your online searchings and such, uh, I have uh, I've been mostly offline today. Uh, I can't imagine that it is because the um, from what I saw, I didn't look too much into this, but apparently a single indictment was brought down uh, in the Breonna Taylor case in something paltry for one of the uh, the the cops. Yeah, because um, they he like he for, shot for at like, the neighboring apartment for like which cri- is wanton. I forget like what the exact part. charge was, but it sounded like something like criminal bungling or something. Yeah, essentially, it's like a property da- violation. Yeah, he was he he was uh, negligent in like the disposition of private property by shooting at it. I mean, it's horrible, but at the same time, it is totally predictable, and not just because of you know racism, but because regardless of the race of the people involved, it is almost impossible to get a cop can to be charged with a crime in the killing of a civilian. They are assumed to have a discretion over life and death that is near absolute. And that drives people crazy because we keep having these horribly unjust killings. But that's because our institutions do not comport to our idea of justice, which is why you change them. But they cannot give us what we seek. It's impossible. There's no amount of shaming or cajoling uh, within the current structure that you can make that change it has to be it has to be structural uprooting it's the only way you're going to change the outcomes because a cop can say anything and their testimony is essentially uh given the status of truth until it is impeached which is very difficult to do i feared for my life how do you impeach that from a factual perspective it's almost impossible And the legal statutes don't even allow a lot of leeway in terms of uh, charging police officers. I mean, in this case, the, the, uh, Brianna Taylor was shot, you know, in her bed, but it was because her uh, boyfriend fired at these cops and he fired at them because they just broke into his fucking house without saying who they were. But as soon as they open fire on him, they now can claim that they were fucking acting in self-defense and they have a, 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 a presumption of truth there because... The guy fired at them. And yeah, it's like, well, of course he did. You broke into his house without saying who you were because you were on a fucking wrong, wrongly written warrant that had the wrong address. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter. At that point, they are in a position vis-a-vis this guy shooting at them. And they have a bit, I mean, they would have almost limited discretion to fire on them thinking he had a gun. Once he fires, it's open fucking season. And the problem with that is having people in the world who have that power. You can't have that power in a fucking demo- putative democracy, and if the inst- and if that and if your social structures won't absorb that, well, then you got to change them. You have to change the social structures that to so that that is not a necessary job. I mean, to the extent that it is, it's obviously not. Largely, I mean, that is a that is a theater of cruelty designed to reinforce ca- ca- caste more than it is to um, uphold any kind of law and order. 
but I mean, there is, there is, there will be under any capitalism a need for a, a, uh, a coercive monopoly of state violence to deal with the fact that there's going to be pathology. There's going to be violent response uh, and criminal response that, that people are going to want to see addressed. How you address that, a lot of what depends on that is depends on what kind of violence you're seeing. And everything we have in our culture is designed to make every confrontation as hostile and violent as possible because everybody is living on the fucking edge of annihilation at any given moment. And everyone is either really in desperate physical uh, misery and, 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 and desperate uh, fear for ability to sustain oneself, or one is wrapped in a paranoid fantasy of, of, uh, of, uh, of being existentially threatened, the way the cops are, the way that suburbanites are, because the misery is on display. The horror is on display for everyone. How we respond to it is determined by our relationship to it. And if you're feeling it, you're just feeling it. You're feeling the, the misery and you're feeling the alienation and you're feeling uh, the desperation. But if you are not feeling it, but observing it from a position of authority and control, you will then be charged with terror at what is being unleashed. The, as Jefferson said about slavery, uh, you're holding a wolf by two ears. You can't bear to let go lest what happens if it, turns on you and that's the relationship of our ruling class to it's like citizenry right now and i think that's also why they're gonna give a baby its bottle and have a regular election because it's gonna let off so much steam it's gonna be like nutting it's gonna be like that scene in the master when amy adams reaches around and cranks off philip seymour hoffman at this at the sink and she goes no more of that boy's hooch no more of that boy's hooch stay away from that hooch and then blorp that election, this election is going to, if it goes off regular, that is going to give us a nice nut, a discharge. That's going to give us a good refractory period where business can get done, which is all they're doing now. Everything is putting the can down the road. And I feel like the, the easiest way to kick the can down the road is to have a regular ass election and allow all the like bent, the, the built up steam that has uh, been accumulated by, uh, through all the violence and hysteria surrounding, you know, uh, um, uh, Antifa and whatever the fuck and the entire protest waves that we've had that kind of uncoincidentally exploded in the middle of the pandemic and in the middle of the quarantine as like a response to this social pressure. That's got to go somewhere. And that means that we're probably going to see isolated violence, some uh, intense shit, but it's all going to be part of a greater discharge that will leave us momentarily sort of cyclically sated uh, and, and allow the new consolidation of capital, uh, the reconsolidation of the post-2008 uh, economic model, the, the, the asset stripping uh, terminal austerity model that is going to be, that is in the process of being challenged and is always being challenged in election eras, one way or the other, being reestablished and reaffirmed, even in the face of another even more sustained economic downturn than last time. Uh, it's not going to last, but nothing can last at this point. It's all about poking it down the can, kicking the can down the field. And what I say to people who think that the fucking collapse is right around the corner is <coughs> you can kick the can down the field for a long fucking time. As long as that field is relatively uh, even and flat and you don't run out of energy and you can stop for snacks, you can kick that motherfucking can all day. 
And that's what they're going to try to do. Slavery in the 19th century was that can. They did that shit for 80 years. Yep. Kick those motherfucking cans. Kicking and snacking, baby. We love it, don't we? We love to kick, and then we love to snack. I love a snack. And then I kick. Bang. I kick. I kick the can better than anybody. They said I could have been a professional at kicking the can. They said it. They told me I could be a pro. The best in the city. But I went to school. I went to school. I went to school so I could make deals. I love to make deals. How many of y'all like to make deals? Can I get a deals in the chat? An inebriated past on John Brown. Not a terrible idea. After I finish uh, Snow snow Cutter? No. Uh, cloud Splitter. After I finish Cloud Splitter, I might do that because John Brown's life is fascinating. Harper's Ferry is just one part of it. He had a, a really interesting intersection with a lot of elements of uh, America and he he was part of a uh, of a dynamic between uh, a a broadly speak spoken proletariat uh, a a broadly spoken repressed second class citizen uh, internal minority in the form of uh, African Americans both slave and free and then a northern uh, emerging bourgeois uh a middle class with a middle class morality centering in their politics. Uh, those three things orbited each other again. And then of course, all of those working, uh, uh, resolving around, uh, the grand antagonist of the unified Southern slave power. Like those things interacting with each other. Like that was the, that was the, the mortar and pestle of the, of the antebellum era. And John Brown is the straw that stirs the drink. So I think it'd be very profitable to talk about him, not just about how he represents sort of the ideal, uh, the ideal American, the ideal American in the sense that the the one who the best promise of of the American experiment could produce, and so rarely, rarely did because it mostly was a failure of an experiment. But the best of what it produced was John Brown. But then also his role in things like Bleeding Kansas and. Uh, his role is like the leading edge of anti-slavery opinion. Like his willingness to take a leap of faith to go beyond where anyone else was, even at the risk of their own annihilation. Uh, that's the engine of history. Like you need someone in crucial moments to be willing to harness their their power, their social capital in the form of his ability to, to convince his family and his friends to put themselves to this effort to go beyond where everyone else was going, to go deeper and going farther in anti-slavery activity the, to to push beyond the realm of the possible because that was what risked their lives and they were willing to do that by willing to do it they kick-started the fucking engine of history they melded the aims of the the largely racist anti-slavery working class of the north who hated slavery because it was economic competition and the abolitionist middle class who which hated slavery on moral grounds he he helped weld them together and that was the that was the coalition that together with the the rebelling slaves in the south defeated the slave power he made it possible and then the death of lincoln before he could maybe play that role in consecrating the new 
unity out of that. Wilkes Booth and Brown are the two guys who sacrificed themselves for something and were consequentially leveraged points in human history whose actions and sacrifices changed the flow of human history through sheer concentration of will in good and bad ways. And the, at the beginning, at the end of the, of the, of the civil war era. So yeah, I might do that. I might do a John Brown IB or IP might do that soon. Actually. Uh, maybe I will time it to the release of the John Brown show on Showtime, which was supposed to come out in August and now got postponed to November because I think they wanted to have more time to give it awards sent and to make it into a prestige show. Because I think that by the time there was too much corona in the air, nobody was talking about prestige shows. So they pushed it back, hoping people would normalize enough that by like October we would be doing think pieces again about John Brown so that it would have cultural cachet and get its way into the discussion about our prestige television. So when that comes, but so it'll be out in November. And when it comes out, I think as a companion, I will talk about John Brown and maybe use that movie as a text to bounce off of. Maybe I'll have John, uh, Matt Carpon. Or I might just do it myself. Either way, I think that's going to happen. I'll put that in. I'll pencil that in for November. Uh, maybe if we're aggressive enough with whoever's on the, uh, with whoever is is doing press for it, we could get an uh, interview with the creator as a as a little supplement tag at the end. I don't know if you would want to get salty with them, but I think it would be. Oh, I would not get salty. I mean, the thing is, I don't know if it's going to be bad or not. I suspect I'm going to hate it though. Let me just put my cards on the table. I've only seen a trailer. And the tone of the trailer and the tone of the performances was that it was a postmodern dissection of John Brown with the conceit being the only conceit anybody can imagine now because the present is so totalizing that no one has the ability to see the past as anything but now. Like that's that's the deadening nature of capitalism is that it absorbs everything and then you can't even think outside of its terms you can't think of you can't think as a subject other than a alienated late western subject so that means you project that backwards and the trailer looked like hey we're all gonna do quotation marks around this and john brown wasn't he kind of uh oh he's that's awkward like every time he like would say something stentorian there would be like a little cut to undermine it where it almost it almost seemed like somebody was going to go, wow, well, uh, so that happened. Gee, tell me what you really feel, John. Uh, and to me, that is poison. Because how are you supposed to make sense of John Brown if you're going to put him in the context of us? We're one of the reasons we're where we are is because we don't have any straws to stir any drinks. Because no one will move beyond their comfort level. And I don't mean to violence. I don't think we're at that point. I don't think we're at the point that he was at. I mean to effective action that is not solipsistic. And, I, and I'm not blaming any particular person there, and I indict myself as well. But we are motivated by this solipsistic need to self-satisfy because we do not have the deeper faith in our, our mission. And it's going to take people who are and do to kickstart the fucking engine again. And I don't know who those people are. I wish I knew. I don't think I'm one of them. When I read, Snow, when I read uh, Cloud Splitter... I identify too much with Owen Owen Brown and his ambivalence. 
even though I am in awe of John Brown's earnestness. And though, and I feel that in some moments I feel close to him, but I know it's a struggle and I know it's the one that I'm not winning on a day-to-day basis enough to put myself forward in that position. Especially since I'm also like, I don't have the skills to know what the moment calls for. I, I'm only kind of grasping towards reality. I'm, I'm, that's why I talk in abstraction so much because the, the present moment is so baffling and complex and, and, and intimidating. I don't, I don't really know what's going on. I can only try to talk myself down to it from the sky because it's so intimidating. And I th- hopefully there are other people who are closer to the ground, but also fired up, kindled by a transcendent love. Well, I don't know. We're holding out for a hero. Remember that song? Can we play that? Do you know the song I'm talking about? Uh, oh, of course. Uh, maybe, maybe at the end. Yes, that's perfect. We'll go out with that one. That was from uh, what movie? That was in an 80s movie, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, wasn't it made for an 80s movie? I think it was. What movie was that song made for? Hold it out for a hero. I want a hero, hero at the end of time. And you gotta be strong and you gotta be wrong. Uh, for, for, for Footloose. Footloose. It was Footloose? Yes. There is that it is also notably used in Shrek. Oh, I don't count Shrek. Shrek is such got is such soulless garbage. I remember one of my favorite early Tim and Eric's bits they did was when Shrek three came out. They did a whole bit where they were doing pro bono promotion for Shrek three because they just were so excited about the franchise and wanted to get the word out. Because uh, the Shrek it just the whole Shrek franchise to me just feels absolutely soulless it's the worst of the cgi uh generation of children's entertainment like i have my i have my own arguments with pixar's pretentious adult first approach but shrek just seems like absolutely mercantile mercantile garbage my favorite shrek fact is that um Notoriously, Chris Farley was supposed to be Shrek, and then they he, and then he died. His dad died, it. and then uh, they got Mike Myers on, and I believe that they had recorded most of Mike Myers's dialogue, and then he decided he wanted. Yeah, to do then it he decided to do a Scottish accent, and it cost them like ten million dollars to recreate, redo the mouth. What a prick! Oh, like that movie would have made a dollar less if he'd done a normal fucking accent. Fuck off. I I, I like Mike Myers, one of our last great comedic. Uh, he auteurs. is a he is like Jerry Lewis style auteur. I will give him that. Um, can I get a beer? Do you want a beer? Oh, I'm um, get a beer. I'll grab you one. Uh, I was gonna do a quick a quick question. I was gonna bring it up a little bit. Oh yeah. Uh, I'll do one comment because I saw somebody say something and I wanted to bring it up. Somebody, I think jokingly said, inebriated past on Janine Garofalo in the Iraq War. I've been asked this before. People keep talking about Janine Garofalo in the Iraq War. I, I think. Say, I mean, I know what they're talking about, though. I know what they mean by I that. will say that this is, we have already talked about this on Chapo. In the episode where uh, Virgil talks to Sam Sater about Air America and what it is, which I think is a very interesting episode because it talks about like what left media was in the uh, during the Bush one. Yeah, Bush it was era, brutal. Which is nothing. And the key, the point of that was that Janine Garofalo was the person that they had to get on TV. She was the face of the anti-war movement. She was like, the she was the she was the uh, Eugene McCarthy of night of two thousand three. And is, that's just how 
that just shows you how decrepit the left was and like how overweening the bipartisan consensus for war was and for the new cold war was that there was no that was it was just this tattooed lady alternative comedian who did jokes about her fucking period in coffee shops going on Geraldo to say, please don't murder a million fucking Iraqis. And everyone said, LOL, look at her, uh, nice bra burner. Then we killed everybody for no fucking reason and said, oh, shit, our bad. Well, and then skirt, skateboarded away. God damn it. How do you not want this empire to fall and everyone in it to fucking just be destroyed? No, but I I think Janine is uh, a hero for that that reason and, and it's like people made fun of her it's like she was the only one if it wasn't her what it was going to be emo phillips how far were they going to have to go down the tree to get somebody they're going to have to get a hobo off the street and shave him and say hey you're opposed to the iraq war um but while i while i rebeer you uh i'll do another light one and then i've got a serious one and then I'll also me, one. Motherfucker! Uh, yeah. somebody asked and i think this is a great question because there's so many good ones uh what what is your favorite photo of trump oh well of course you love the kubrickian symmetry of standing behind the burgers that's of course an iconic photograph we love the burgers don't we folks look at the burgers they're delicious and i would say the opposite of that photo in terms of strikingness uh, but from like the other side from like the the underbelly of the of the court of the king's you know uh the the the, the, the nude emperor it's that stark shot of him coming back from Tulsa, the rally that ended up killing, killing Herman Cain, where he is looking downcast and rumpled and has a big orange line on the inside of his fucking shirt collar. Very, very, very good. Uh, my personal is him yelling at the little boy mowing the lawn. I love that. You know, that's one of my favorites, and I did a great tweet about this. It was one of my favorite bits where i just loved having uh love having a twitter i might actually can we put something on the screen if i bring it up uh yeah if you really hard i won't do it but i said uh, that when that picture came out i said that that's an awesome picture because it could it is the platonic ideal of a 1980s punk rock album cover (laughs) like that guy just standing screaming in on the lawn like and then with like a cutout name of a band and I said, I tweeted that and then a bunch of people put mock-ups in my, in my amenities and I, they were like, oh, this is exactly what I meant. And I just said it and they just made what I was thinking. Uh, give me, give me some keywords of that tweet. I think punk rock album cover. All right, let's see if I can find that. Um, yep. Yep. Every picture of Trump looked like it's an 80s punk rock album cover, and it's him yelling at the kid. And then two people uh, posted uh, photoshops that were legitimately great. Oh, oh, there's like four of them here. The one where it says America, the beautiful, and it's like black, and it's color reversed, and oh, by the Kafifis. Oh, that's so good. The one where they have the scratched off marker over his eyes. Anyway, have you found it? Uh, I'm I'm trying to add it in Streamlabs real quick. Okay. But yeah, no, I love that picture. That's a top three picture too. The one where he gave the the metal, the one where he's in the the truck, and he's going like, eh, and he's excited. One of the three times his in, in this presidency, he was happy. 
Hey, look at it. I, know, I can do I can do streaming management. There it goes. Look at him. Chris is a fucking pimp and a legend. How dare you even question his ability? He is on the ones and twos. Fuck, he's on the ones and twos and threes. He's on the fours. This motherfucker's on the fives. I have seen this motherfucker be on the sixes. Hand to God. <laughs> this is really good. That one's very good. <laughs> yeah, they're all great. Aren't those? Isn't that isn't that good? Yes. Oh, the orb photo also great. Oh, love the orb photo. Uh, yeah, that was absolutely absolutely like through the looking glass stuff. Um, all right, here's here's the uh, the more serious question that I wanted to because I know you love talking about this. Uh, the question I w- was was um, when you're talking about the coup and how everybody gets hyped up about it, something along the lines of. How does this relate to France, 1851? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Well, the thing, the difference there, though, is that you are dealing with an unstable revolutionary coalition of power. It was was a contest, you see. There was a contest for power at the top. In the Brumaire. No, uh, in the Brumaire, Marx talks about this. The reason that Napoleon Bonaparte arose to, to embody the French bourgeois was because they couldn't get their act together. They were split between legitimists and Orleanists and Bonapartists, which broadly construed to uh, the old landed gentry who were embodied by the legitimists, uh, the Orleanists who represented the the bourse, the the, the stock jobbers and the the, the new financial elite, uh, and uh, the Napoleon, uh, the the Bonapartists who represented essentially the deep state, the, 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 the army, uh, and of course the prole- the lumpen proletariat and the peasantry, as 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 they remembered Napoleon as as the last good years, uh, because they were of course little potatoes, in the, the gathered up in their sack. And I would posit that we do not have a similar situation at the moment. I think we have a relatively united bourgeois. I think the only real argument we have is between this Trumpist faction who represents the last gasp of the Reaganite coalition of small uh, small bourgeois, small regional, the beautiful boaters. If anyone read the uh, Patrick Wyman article about local uh, power wielders, like the local political and, and uh, economic elite in the hinterland and how those guys are not, those guys aren't Goldman Sachs billionaires. Those guys aren't. Uh, hedge fund dudes. Those guys own a bunch of McDonald's. They own this Buddy Garrity from fucking Friday Night Lights. That is, those are the people. They are not directly in connection with the global financial market. They are, in fact, often harmed by the global financial market because the global financial market needs to equalize with someone else succeeding where they must fail, uh, and they have to take it on the chin. But they have no investment in the greater project. At least they don't perceive themselves to because they have the limited vision of a local magnate, a local power. Their 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 tendrils reach only so far into the firmament of the global uh, market chain, either to benefit them or to edu- enter- educate them about how the system actually works and to whose benefit. So they have represented Trump now in there, and he is a he is a, a spanner in the works. He is a clog in the machinery of integrating into a, like a global uh, 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 system in opposition to the rising Chinese and Russians who are in the process of attempting to establish an alternative monetary basis for international currency exchange, which would undermine America's uh, role as the global reserve currency. Uh, and 
that fight is is going to happen. Uh, and Trump and his nationalism, his failure to integrate, his his undermining of NATO, uh, his undermining of the greater like deep state project is a genuine threat. Now you can say that that well that means he should win because we want to disrupt that process, uh, perhaps. But the thing is, is that if he did disrupt it, it would be on his terms politically, which means it would most likely lead to a very unproductive collapse, not some sort of glorious overcoming of contradictions, in my opinion. So that's why also that's the other reason, by the way, that I really don't think they're going to do a coup on Trump's behalf, because there is a fundamental conflict on how to view the world markets, how to deal with questions like globalization, if not from Trump, then from a political consensus that could be could come out of Trumpism. That would be like a refoundation of uh, of uh, conservative politics along explicitly nationalist lines that would run counter to the global agenda. Uh, so as a result, I don't think anyone's going to do a coup on behalf of Trump, and they're going to just tell him to go away. But the thing that's depressing is is that none of this means that Trump winning helps anything. Uh, it just increases the sparks and, and, and flames and, and, and heightens these hysterical uh, uh, cultural conflicts that have no connection to lived experience, to uh, actual like material conditions for most people, and only polarize people against one another and make it almost impossible to achieve any kind of solidarity. Uh, it's just, he's like the eternal, he's an alarm clock going, he is an alarm that's going off every five seconds. You know? So I don't think you can say any with any confidence that him winning wouldn't be good either. And Biden, same thing. It's all shit. All the options are shit. And that's why the Trump coup option seems to be the least likely, because in this, when I think of it this way, it's the one that's the most potentially useful. So, of course, it's not going to happen. Why would they let it happen when they could stop it? All they got to do is not support Trump, and he will fucking walk away with his tail between his legs. Some Q people might shoot up some fucking pizza places, but so what? That's just part of the fucking uh, symphony of America. Ah. Ah. Chris Wade on the ones and twos. Oh, come on. On the ones and twos, times two to the fourth power. Can check. I'm drinking a hard craft seltzer from two robbers with watermelon and cucumber. It is a refreshing delight. I'm going to open a pack of Gulf War trading cards. Oh, yeah. Those are always, those are always, this is always content. It's free content. It's free. I mean, obviously this is the gag, but it's just great that every single one of them is either like a one, one degree link to a global, uh, spider system of, of monstrosity perpetuated over a generation or like the moon. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh boy. What do we got here? The Netherlands. Hey, didn't we love their participation? Ooh, the Harrier jump jet. You guys might remember this motherfucker from True Lies. Hell this yeah, is that's the, even this rules. is the jet, jet that can uh, that can take off vertically. 
because it's got jet thrusters. A truly versatile aircraft, the U.S. Marine Corps Harrier II is capable of vertical takeoff and landing from either a carrier or a land base. Designed as a close ground support aircraft, it can hover over the combat area and direct its fire at artillery emplacements or armor. The Harrier can strafe enemy ground troops at high speeds, firing machine guns and missiles, or dropping clusters or fire bombs. You know where fucking Harrier got the most action? In fucking true lies. <laughs> that fucking thing... If we didn't have the Harrier, if nobody ever thought of that shit, would any outcome militarily have changed in the last 30 fucking years? The only thing that would have been different is they would have used a different thing at the end of True Lies. Maybe a helicopter or an ornithocopter from Dune or something. They wouldn't, they would have had to invent something. That's the fucking, that's the imprint of the Harrier on American fucking history. This thing we probably spent a zillion dollars on. Just, just to, just for shit to appear in Hollywood blockbusters. That being said, can I get a "you're fired" going in the chat? Get a what? Uh, when he shoots the shoots the bad guy off the missile, uh, Arnold goes "you're fired." That movie is really good, dude. Cameron is good. He's the king. All the practical effects in that movie when he just he fucking does the he does the motherfucking motorcycle from the top of the skyscraper to the other one. They really did that shit. The fucking bridge action scene. Oh, the squibs, glorious squibs, 100% squibs. They killed five, like 500 motherfuckers in that movie, and every one of them dies with a rivulet of beautiful squibs gushing forth out of them. That's why the, the prospect of four more Cameron avatars is such a bizarre idea, because the man has no misses, and yet the thing he's been working on for, for so long has seemed like such a preposterous uh, uh, proposition. I, it's just I because wait. he wants to inscribe it in history. Like, he literally said that he, he saw a tweet where someone said, Avatar is the most popular movie ever taught him and has no cultural footprint. And then he decided, I'm going to show you cultural footprint, motherfucker. You're not going to be able to escape this thing for five years. It's going to imprint on you deeper than your mother's fucking laugh. And that's his gamble. And he's now got some sort of Corona pod in New Zealand trying to make these motherfuckers. I say Godspeed. And the thing is, everyone who's ever doubted him has been wrong. I remember when people said True Lies was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. And everyone said, they're throwing money away. This is a huge disaster. Then, giant, massive hit. Epochal, one of the 90s greatest action films. People said Titanic, most expensive movie ever. Oh, my God. This thing's been delayed forever. He's a sec. He's crazy. He's doing all this nutty shut. Oh, my God. He's going to get these people killed. Comes out, biggest movie all time. Avatar. I remember watching the trailer and saying, this looks like PS2. This looks like dog shit. I can't believe this thing fucking comes. James Cameron hasn't made a movie in so long, and this is the shit he makes. Comes out. I'm sorry. If you saw it in the theater, in the 3D, it was amazing. You can fucking look like an asshole now and say it's a piece of shit. And yes, it didn't leave much of a cultural footprint. But sitting in that theater with the dewdrops falling in front of your face and the fucking Navi sticking their fucking uh, sexy-ass tails up each other's assholes and the giant mech suits doing battle with the fucking lizard creatures and going over those fucking falls with the plane and, and the fucking helicopters and, the, and, the, and, the, and those animals that they fuck <laughs> and the flying with them. It was amazing. The and it made has, the most money ever. The man has three times made an original property that has made the most money of any movie no ever. No one else does that. And the other thing is, he writes this shit. Spielberg doesn't write shit. Uh, give it up for James Cameron. Zack Snyder even doesn't fucking write this shit. True, uh, if you like auteurs in the current moment. Michael king. Bay doesn't write his own shit. Peter Jackson obviously just steals shit from fucking Tolkien. Uh, none of these motherfuckers write their own stuff. Except... 
for my man, motherfucking James Cameron. He is a one of a kind. And that's why I say don't doubt him. You know what? We might come out of fucking quarantine and the first big movie out in new theaters is Avatar 2. And everyone in the world sees this thing in celebration of being able to be in public again. And it makes $7 billion. And God damn it, we're going to want to see the next one. And the memory of being able to leave your house and see a movie theater becomes such a cultural touchstone that it actually becomes a holiday. Celebrated around the world, a moment of true Avatar Day. International unity at the prospect of being jo- joining your fellow man in a public space and engaging in an activity. Avatar Day. We gather around the mother, the world tree. The mother tree, whatever the fuck it was. What was the name of the fucking tree that they fuck? Uh, mother, mother tree. The mother tree. The mommy tree. The mo- the mommy tree. All right, here's another card. Military ser- skill. Women in combat. We got a lady. We got a lady in combat here. She's standing. She's looks like she's directing traffic. That doesn't look like combat. Military skill is not restricted to men. Women are represented in all branches of the U.S. military, although legally banned from combat. Women served in support roles, including resupply and transportation. Their close proximity to the front lines of a modern war put them at the same risk as their male counterparts. That sounds a little condescending. It was the same risk. Even though they didn't give you guns or let you go where there was a shooting, there was the same risk. Also, the name of this card is Women in Combat, and then it says there's no women in combat. So what does this fucking card represent? Women in Combat. Yeah, that's not a thing. Well, then why is it a card? This shouldn't be a card at all. It's a self-negating card. This card should disappear to a cloud of uh, antimatter. What the fuck? Oh, here's a country that people probably thought this card, oh, this is a, one of those filler cards. This country, it's barely involved in America. Why would I ever think about it again? Afghanistan. Here's a little ghost of Christmas future for you in this deck of cards. Uh, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979 to put down revolts against communist rule. That's not true, actually. Uh, it was to uh, overthrow the erratic government that was ruled by a cadre of uh, just alcoholic psychos. A civil war followed, and, and it was also uh, antagonized by the U.S. funding, the uh, Mahajadeen, even before that. A civil war followed in which the government and the Soviets controlled the cities while the guerrilla forces, or Mujahideen, ruled the countryside. Since the Soviet withdrawal in 1989, communist and Mujahideen factions continue to fight. Oops. Damn. We bungled that shit. The guerrilla forces sent 500 Mujahideen fighters to help. Wait a minute. What? The Mujahideen... The guerrilla forces sent 500 Mujahideen fighters to help in Operation Desert Storm. Does... Is that true? I would believe it because a lot of it was essentially the Saudis, like it was a Saudi intelligence project, like filtered, like, uh, like laundered through the ISI in Pakistan. Like it was, it was just a Saudi intelligence operation. So it would make sense, like get some of their best guys and have them come. But that would be very funny if it was true because of course the chief way above anything like Israel, which he didn't really care about, Bin Laden's number one crime that he associated with the United States that we had to pay for was the occupation of Saudi Arabia after the Gulf War. He said American infidel troops in the Holy Land of Afga- of Saudi Arabia was the the affront of affronts that needed to be corrected. That, that was the signal of the new crusade that needed to be waged. 
And it would be very appropriate if they'd brought their best heavy hitting, like acid throwing psychos from uh, Afghanistan to, I don't know what, where, where would they go? Would we, like some American be in a fucking foxhole and he'd like turn to his left and there'd be a fucking Al Qaeda guy or like a proto Al Qaeda guy, like Gulbuddin Hekmartair is there. I would like more information about that because that seems weird. Uh, I like the person who commented uh, Avatar 2 dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen. Yep. <laughs> the brave Navi Mujahideen. They, they were like the Mujahideen in Avatar. It was a guerrilla, it was a guerrilla war. They were like, the, they were like the, the Viet Cong or the Mujahideen or, of course, the Ewoks. Those are the direct uh, influences. Uh, all right. We, we're just over an hour here. We're at 105. Um, maybe a... Uh, a, like take one more question, either something uh, uh, um, silly or something serious. Yeah, um, let's have a fun one, huh? Let's have a fun one. I will say, um, somebody way back asked uh, thoughts about getting Mike Duncan on the show. That's actually on, on the again. I actually, hope to do that. That's actually on my to do list this week. Is email him again and see if he wants to come back on and see see maybe how how both of our thinkings have involved evolved as he's delved into the. Uh, 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 Russian Revolution. Uh, and I would like to talk to him, especially since he, he finished off talking about 1905, which I don't think we're in that revolutionary situation. But I think that it is its broad contours are similar. We just don't have the uh, the social combustion. Uh, I can't miss this uh, this one for myself. Chris got a favorite Do- Joy Division song. Goes back and forth all the time. I think uh, Dead Souls is an underrated banger, but I think for top, you have to, the absolute top, you have to just go with one of the all-time greatest album o- order openers, Disorder. I don't know if I showed you guys this guy. Also, No Love Lost Bangs. Someone, I forgot who it is, and I'm sorry, because I think he asked me for a shout-out once, and I forgot his name, though. Uh, and if he wants to, if he's watching this, please DM me, and I will, I will in the next episode, shout you out. Somebody sent us some Jesse Ventura action figure that was put out for his... President, his gubernatorial campaign in 2000, which he won, which was very prefigurative Trump. But I honestly do believe, I really, really, I mean, it wouldn't have really worked because the Green Party just, our two-party system too is too entrenched and Trump is too polarizing. But man, in a, in a, in a different world, Jesse Ventura could have been the synthesis that we need of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. He honestly could have. Like synthesizing the Carnival Barker American populist spectacle to social democratic ends. I'm not saying it necessarily could have happened or would have happened or that he was capable of it even, but I just think there's some universes where that happens. Just like there's some where Henry Wallace leads us to a global, like eventual transition to communism throughout uh, the, uh, like the rise and maintenance of international uh, governing institutions following World War II where he's president. It's fun to dream sometimes and just, just put it out there. Because if you can imagine it there, maybe you can make it happen here. Who knows? I'm still looking for a nice, a nice little goofy button to end it, end it on. Yeah, let's have some fun. All I wanna do is have some fun, and I got a feeling I'm not the only one. All I wanna do. Is have okay, some fun I mean, until the sun comes 
this person keeps keeps yelling about it. I'm still looking for a joke one, but I I kind of mostly just want to hear your uh, your Zizek impression for this. What yes, would, of course. Yes, what is what this? would Marx say about game shows? Of course, the game show we see the form here. It is the capitalist. It is the commodity fetish turned in spell into spectacle. It is turned to it's the reification uh, in the fantasy realm of the 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 sexual. A transition of the animation of the market transaction in the form of victory, in the form of uh, cash prizes, and of course in the form of bedroom sets and of course Acapulco vacations. All right, we're we're at one or nine. Oh, this is the perfect time to end a stream or an episode. One hour nine minutes. Uh, my favorite time episode length. Uh, let's go out here. Let's call it. I think this was a pretty good one. Uh, and we're going to go out on, of course, holding out for a hero. Say yes, good- we're holding out for a hero, folks. Say good night, Matt. Good night, Matt.